I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. I looked up some conservative jokes online. Did you hear no. the new one? Yes. No. Did you hear? Come on. Did you hear about the new Obama diet plan? Wait, don't start this way. You let Putin eat your lunch every day. Oh, God, for God's sake, when was that joke even written? So 2014. Oh, I guess it's kind of nostalgic. <laughs> a conservative joke about the American president being too close to the Russian president. Not funny, but nostalgic. Okay, okay, all right, all right. What do Democrats and porn stars have in common? They are experts at switching positions in front of a camera. Whitney, these jokes suck, and Trump's, like, totally destroyed their premise. (laughs) It's almost as though Trump has, like, eviscerated the entire category, an entire category of conservative jokes, like, because he's done everything that they joke about. But whatever. This is why we're having a humor episode. Later in the show, we'll talk to the Washington Post humor columnist, Alexandra Petri, about what has happened to political humor including conservative humor, if that ever even existed. But first, we're going to talk to best-selling essayist Sloane Crosley about what it's like to be funny in the age of Trump, especially if you're not going to talk about Trump. Sloane, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, uh, look, congratulations on your new essay collection, uh, Look Alive Out There, which I've been reading, which is sitting here on my mother's breakfast table. My mother's breakfast table. As you come through Kansas City. As I uh, live and die. Here <laughs> it go is. To Lawrence. Um, <laughs> Which is terrific, and you published two best-selling essay collections. I was told there would be cake, and how did you get this number in 2008 and 2011? Um, I read that you turned this new collection into your editor the day before the Trump-Clinton election. Uh, So how different is it to be publishing satiric essays now as opposed to then? Well, I mean, they're not really—I don't know if I would call them satire. I mean, I think about what ends up— in, you know, shouts and murmurs, or I think about, you know, Thurber or Mark Twain or, you know, these very sort of major satirists. Um, right. And um, I don't know if, if, if that's what these are. They're more So we started by calling your stuff the wrong thing? No. I apologize. I wish, I wish it was. Because well, there is a trigger. Like, I really wish there's a way... That when people do the the shouts and murmurs, the shouts and murderers, I'm putting articles in front of things like I'm foreign. Like afterwards, we'll play the tennis. That's always how you can tell someone. Is We're doing the Skype country. right now. We're doing the Skype. <laughs> it's happening on the table. Well, the table is actually, that's real. But um, anyway, but yeah. The, the mother's just, table. The mother's table. Right, exactly. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like I, um, it's happening so fast and furious that 
I find that I need to sort of digest and, and marinate on thoughts for a while before I make them funny. Um, as quippy as the essays tend to be, they do take more time than they probably look like. And we don't have time. <laughs> we just have the impending apocalypse. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, Sorry. any second now. This is the cheery podcast episode. <laughs> That's where we were like, oh, God, we've got to do a lighter one. Definitely humor. Yeah, if we do political slow, humor, then it'll yeah. be all chill. Um, oh but yeah, I mean, I was told there would be cake was a finalist for the Thurber Prize. And, and I can't say that I associate Thurber's essays, which I love with a particular president, of course, or that I would even be able to name who was president when a particular book of his came out. And he was writing like you about the human condition and not the presidency. And when I'm reading a Sloan Crosley essay, the characters I'm looking forward to meeting are the people around you. And on a number of levels, like I'd be alarmed if the president suddenly barged in, like <laughs> unannounced, just as like a, like the way like a casual. Hey, Sloan! Yeah, you know what he just casually appears in the essay. I just name drop it. You know, I was on the subway. I saw Trump. Anyway, this hilarious thing happened. <laughs> yada yada yada. Yeah, I mean, I actually, it's so funny. I just finished reading. Um, Thurber has this amazing autobiography. It's very slim. Called I think it's called My Life in Hard Times. Um, and it's excellent. But yeah, there's something freeing about not addressing this, about not addressing Trump. I mean, I handed in this collection right after, you know, basically right after the election. Um, the, the day Hillary lost is how I like to yeah. refer to it. Um, and then, you know, I feel like it, it, so it doesn't really address. I mean, that the world was sort of still going to pot at that moment, but it wasn't for sure. And um I don't know. I think that it's it's nice to focus on humor that's a little bit everlasting and just recognize that there's something larger going on. I mean, there's we were talking about satirists before, um, and I was thinking, what is the... I'm going to mess this up on, on your podcast, but the Mark Twain quote, which is something like, patriotism is... You should always be loyal to your country and to your government when it deserves it. Right. Right, and I... It's funny, but it's and it's not even the best of Twain, you know, the greatest hits. Um, but it's, but it's also, I think, to me, speaks to the sort of permanence of the country over the government. Um, and in a weird yeah. way, so does humor, and so do these essays. There are other things that that are funny or are annoying or are sad, and your range of motion isn't necessarily limited to Trump and Game of Thrones. I mean, that's the thing is like the aperture. I, I reading the book made me feel like. It made me remember how much, on a daily basis, the aperture of my attention has been closed down by Trump. I mean, because there's so many things going on in the book. You know, there's identity theft. There's You talk about egg freezing. You talk about hanging out with swingers in the woods. There's even... <laughs> and speaking of porn stars, as we already have been on this podcast, because oh, of the president. Been? Yes. yes. Uh, I mean, what a crazy segue you just made. <laughs> this is the You have an uncle who I worked know. in the adult film industry. I do. You know? Um, so, I mean... I just thought, oh my God, this is the world that I normally live in, that I want to live in. And, and, and it reminded me that maybe, maybe it's a political act to just live in that world occasionally. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, it's, it's funny. I see what you mean, but it's either you dive headlong into Trump and think, you know, oh God, what now? Uh-huh. Or it's, uh, I think every other form of entertainment has therefore been lumped as escapism. Yeah. I don't... Like you're like guilty if you're these... engaging in it in some way. You've I done know. something wrong. But, but I don't feel like these essays... Are escapist. It's more like let me remind you of the alternate reality that you still have a right to. Right. And in a way, that is actually incredibly freeing. I yeah. Mean, not to be excessively dramatic about it, but if like if you and I were trapped in a bunker, um, just instead of my mother's house, it. instead of your mother's, <laughs> house, we're not trapped. Are we trapped here? Do you no, lock the doors? I think so. Very good information for me to. Know. I have the alarm code. I mean, we can just finish the podcast either way. I suppose it doesn't whether or not the doors are locked doesn't really it's change. Be longer. Things. But basically. Um, that I was going to say that this idea that like if we were trapped in a bunker or if there were some sort of situation where you're you know under extreme duress or upset or something's horrible that's happening when you start fighting and bickering yes maybe you have bigger things to think about like getting out of the bunker but also there's something that's so distracting and so humanizing about that yeah um yeah that and and when I think about some of the essays in this book that are about you know the first one um a woman in a wheelchair basically steals my cab. <laughs> and, you know, this sort of humor of exasperation, that humor of annoyance, it's just, it, it's a muscle that we shouldn't lose because we're going to need it later as per the 
Twain quote. Well, and assess that sort of civilian world that we all have loved about the things that we love about America, right? Are the things that you want that you're fighting for when you're worried that somehow Trump's going to the president's going to, you know, cause a right. constitutional crisis. You know? And it works both ways. I mean, it cuts both ways. If you think about, you know, people who are in the military, you know, serving abroad and, um, you know, meanwhile, people are either burning flags or doing something that's considered disrespectful um, by a lot of conservative people to, I don't know, they fling poo at the White House. I don't know. What, I don't know what people are doing. <laughs> what did you just say? I said fling poo at the White House, and I just realized that that's not a thing. But, you know, who knows? Maybe this starts it. The point is is that is that they're fighting for our ability. That's not disrespectful to therefore, you know, use the flag in a work of art because they're fighting for our ability to make that choice. Yeah. And so similarly, I think the liberal version of that is to laugh at things that are not necessarily Trump and to take the choice back. I totally agree. Although Trump is pretty so, I mean, as long as he's not randomly barging in on your essays. Um, <laughs> I'm still imagining some alternate version of it's your essay It's just a cinematic idea <laughs> that, like, I wouldn't have to stop and write that in. Like, it would just sort of happen. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I wrote a linked essays collection. And the link is that Trump randomly appears in one sentence in every essay. Be Waldo, completely... but, you know, a fascist. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, <laughs> but speaking of non-political problems... Vertigo. There's an essay in this collection on that subject called Cinema of the Confined that I really loved. And I was wondering if you could set that essay up for us a little bit and read to us from it. Yes, I I can. But shall I? Um, Yes. Um, So basically, this is an essay in which I am diagnosed with a somewhat rare inner ear disease. It's not that rare, but um, it's rare for my age group. Um, and at first I don't know what's going on. I'm just getting vertigo, which if you, if you've never had it, um, I can't remember if it's in the passage. I don't think it's in this passage, but if you've never had it, it, it essentially, it wakes you up. It can be very bad. It's very disorienting. Um, it, you fall down. People with severe vertigo will just sort of vomit and hit the deck. Mm. Um, and it's funny cause it's, I say that, you know, not to withhold empathy from people who make a habit of standing up and getting sitting down again and getting a head rush. But if you think you maybe might've had it, you definitely haven't. It's like, you know, when, the, when people think, you know, Oh, I think I've broken a bone. I'm like, you would absolutely know unless it was your toe. <laughs> you would absolutely know if I like cracked your femur in half. They're like, mm, maybe I'm like, mm. no. So it's this horrible thing. Um, but at this point, I'm going to read you a little bit from the beginning and I'm not sure, um, what it is yet. And Okay. Oh, uh, the other thing, I'm sorry, apologies for babbling about this for so long, but um, I was at a speaking engagement at Trinity College in Connecticut, and so then I got on a train back to New York. As soon as I got home, I made an appointment with an ear, nose, and throat doctor whose last name is Goldfinger. I had seen Dr. Goldfinger in the past and knew him to be one of those rare doctors who maintained a balance. Well, I would apologize, but it's definitely going to happen again between treating you like a person and treating you like the New England Journal of Medicine. I also knew him to have a humongous painting of a Rorschach test in his waiting room. Please allow me to correct the image in your mind. The words Rorschach test are spelled out in giant letters. Because it had been many years since my last visit, I was given a clipboard with a frosting thick pile of forms to fill out. Bending my head invited the spins, so I slouched in my chair until my chin was parallel with my knees and leaned the clipboard against them. A woman seated across from me glared in my direction, but an old man in a tweed cap had a smile for me. Boy, had he been there before. I knew I should have been grateful for this twinkle of commiseration, for this moment of kindness passed from one generation to the next but I don't want to be a neat part of any club that can't remember its own handshake. I clicked a cheap pen meant to resemble an esophagus and began (laughs) filling in the blanks, of which there were many. Doctor's office forms are a poor example of of what we, as a society, are capable of. For starters, why are they on paper? Even the most avowed Luddite will concede that information like sulfur makes my throat close up should not be subject to a mortal medium like handwriting. Also, why do they need your social security number 50 times? Are these forms being scattered to the four corners of the earth? Is one getting buried in a time capsule? Can I see the time capsule? (laughs) And who should we contact in case of emergency? Well, I'm already at a doctor's office. Thank you so much for that. I loved reading this essay in part because I've had vertigo and 
it just it's horrible. Um, you know, you you roll over in bed and you feel seasick. Oh, you had? Uh, did it wake you up? Yeah, and then just also, I didn't know what it was for a couple of days when I first had it because I wasn't. I don't know. I just I had never had it before, and had to be sort of walked down the street. Had to be walked everywhere because I couldn't. Did, did they find the sun? Okay, now this is just turning into me, like being a medical examiner. Did they find the source of it? Do you know what's wrong with you? You just because it can come from so many different. It can come from migraines. It can come from, you know. I think in my case, it's my. I have ear like some sort of ear imbalance that okay. might. You didn't fall in a wave yeah. the wrong angle from a surfboard. No. Okay. Well, the no. amazing thing about that is it was the ear crystals thing that you talk about. Yeah, that, the that, sodium that, crystals. Yeah, that was. Crazy. Yeah, it's really. I mean, this is what sort of that essay is interesting, and I'm so happy that. It comes off as interesting because in it I talk about how medical writing versus travel writing and how travel writing inherently those extra scraps from your trip are always interesting. Yeah. You know, even if they don't make it into the article, you know, this harrowing story about a missed flight or something like that or this weird thing is always interesting and extra scraps from medical writing, I say, are not interesting, you know, such as, you know, no one wants to hear about all your phone calls to the insurance company. They're like, <laughs> oh, you went to the pharmacy? That's awesome. What'd you bring me? You know, no one asks these things. Um, and so I realized almost only after I published it that I'm glad you guys find it interesting just because I'm like, wait, have I just sort of had this sort of imitative thing where I just write an essay about how boring <laughs> medical writing is? But it's an essay that's medical writing. Well, but I mean, you have this line that I, this is the line I marked in there was, you know, writing about illness is a form of travel writing that the, the writer's mind stands at attention even when her body cannot because she's entered a new environment in one case voluntarily in the in the other not. I mean, I just thought yeah. that's a great insight, you know. Well, thanks. I mean, it's more it's just this weird they're they're sort of yin and yang. And I, I mean, you don't have to put could be another kind of writing. But for me, it felt like going to a new country, being sick. Um and in a way, it's funny, I actually realized just now that subliminally, very, very deep down, I realized why I think I made that comparison. Okay. Um, and it's because of the poem Tulip, Tulips by Sylvia Plath. Oh my God. I know. But in the very end of that poem, you know, she's she's in a either a hospital or a mental institution and it's, you know, people are trying to send her things to make her feel better and it's all these red imagery, red images that get bigger and bigger. You mm-hmm. know, it's like tulips and lead sinkers and all this stuff that are just sort of invading her white, quiet space. And she cries at the very end and she says it tastes as if it comes from a country as far away as health. Oh. And I just realized <laughs> just now, this is happening in real time, that I think part of the reason why I feel like they're related is because of how much I love that poem, that I feel like this idea of going to a different place. Yeah. Um, but in one case, I say in the essay, it's a matter of, for travel writing, it's narrowing this beautiful, great big world down to a manageable size. So, you know, you, you can't actually tell someone everything about Cape Town in 4,000 words, you know? But with medical writing, you're like, how do I make this interesting and bigger than I stub my toe? And how do I make it relevant to the outside world? It's the kind of news we break on the uh, fiction, nonfiction yes, podcast. Yes, yes. It's an, un- uh, an, un- I had, I had, an it previously unrecollected Sylvia yeah. Plath reference. It's so weird. I think that's why that, yeah. Huh. So I was wondering, I mean, I felt like when you got to that line about writing about illness as a form of travel writing was maybe the moment when you realized, oh, this experience can be an essay. Or maybe you already had decided that this experience was an essay and you started to try to write about it and you found your way to that line. But I'm just wondering, you know, I have a a lot of students who are interested in writing creative nonfiction and and they want to know, like, how how do I know that this thing that happened to me is an yeah. essay why know? is this essay different yeah. from all other essays yeah um yeah <laughs> i think that or story different from all other stories i should say um it it's not quite this binary but just for the sake of answering your question I, it doesn't feel this sharp in the moment but looking back i know that it's either i have a larger point to make in a very sort of traditional essay style in which you have a thesis and here are your bullet points that back it up and then you wrap it up and in a way um, so a couple of the essays do that where I sort of, okay, I have an experience that plugs into this larger thing or observation I've been thinking about. But then a lot of the essays, even the long ones, like the one we're talking about, which is called the cinema of the confined. Um, sometimes they're just thrown into sort of sharp relief by one single line. And so in that one, I can tell you it sometimes, and sometimes I don't know the origin story. Clearly I don't even <laughs> know when I'm thinking of Sylvia Plath and when I'm not, which is something people normally know. But um, 
I remember the doctor when he finally diagnosed me with Meniere's, which is this inner ear. Thing. I was wondering how you pronounced that. There it's, we go. I'm, I think I'm butchering it, so I try to get around it. Um, but he was trying to comfort me, I think, <laughs> but very unironically, yeah. <laughs> he said, "You know, Van Gogh had that." I know. When I read that, I was like, that is not making me feel better. Look how that turned out. (laughs) Also, why don't people know that? That seems like if anyone gets, if you get anything from this podcast, I mean, it would be nice if you bought my book, but don't buy the book. Just know that Van Gogh did not just chop his own ear off for some sort of emo, depressive, bipolar reason. He was trying to get rid of it. Yes. That totally (laughs) makes sense. Anyway, really, there's a lot of breaking news in this book. That's. That's on the list. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you that President Trump is not curious about that. President Trump's not curious about it. But that, those are the ways in which I think about it. So usually it's a moment. I don't go through life being like, oh, I wonder if this would make an essay or this would make an essay. Uh-huh. Um, I think I would be real pain if I did that to my friends. Mm-hmm. And also, how do you, I mean, I guess this, now this seems, this is a very bad question, but I'm sure that you, you must know that there, that part of it is that there's a constellation of things that I think will be funny or amusing or will make people laugh at a certain point. I mean, I, you must have known at the beginning of the essay, like, okay, I have a doctor named Dr. Goldfinger. That in itself is something that I can work with. Right. Right? Well, I changed his name. Oh, okay. Dr. So Goldfinger. I do have a doctor named Dr. Goldfinger, okay. but it's not this doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't change it so much as switch it. Okay. Yeah. But everything else is... So then what other parts of that did you think, oh, this will be good. I know I can work with this. Even though, you know, having vertigo is a terrible thing and not in itself amusing, right? I think there are moments that, oh, no, it's, I mean, there, I mean, there aren't that many moments when something truly bad is happening that you're thinking this is going to be a funny essay. There's another essay in this book called Up the Down Volcano where I managed to strand myself on a active volcano in South America at like 17,000 feet because I'm highly underprepared and there are moments of laughter during that so I remember taking some malaria pills I brought with me and sort of cackling wildly to myself like a crazy person because I'm like what lives up here I'm gonna get malaria (laughs) nothing is alive up here and I shouldn't be here either Um, well that premise in and of itself seems to me like the premise for that essay seems to me that I'm like, oh, yes, this should be funny. This will probably be right. funny. Vertigo does not seem to me like, oh, well, that's yeah. probably well, not again, funny. It's the travel medical thing. Like, right. yeah, you, one you sign up for. But I didn't, but because I was so underprepared and didn't understand how high the mountain I was climbing was actually going to be, in a way, it does have more of a Venn diagram with the illness thing because it's something that I didn't know I was signing up for or something right. I didn't know I was, a room mm-hmm. I did not understand I was walking into. Um, but usually so there are like the like the malaria moment there are a couple of moments of like true laughter in it but it's usually if it's really upsetting only afterwards and like or only as I'm coming off it I mean I remember there's some point in the essay where I, I mentioned that I had just one document about this entire harrowing experience at the end of it and it was two lines and the first was um, the desire to be healthy is different from the desire not to be sick and then the second was Cheryl at Blue Cross. <laughs> but I must have just had a document open where I had started to have this inkling that I was going to write about it. But the way it's written on these two lines, it looks like that's what <laughs> Cheryl at Blue Cross told me. And I was just sort of, I laughed hysterically. I mean, not in my own words, but at the weird configuration. Because I'm like, well, maybe Cheryl at Blue Cross would tell me that. I was really out of it. I was on a lot of Valium to make it helps with the dizziness, you know? So yeah, there's, there's occasional moments that are always that. I mean, I also feel like as I go on between, I was told there'd be cake and how did you get this number? And now for look alive out there, I feel like I, I'm more and more interested in making very unfunny things funny. So we're sort of talking a little bit about things that maybe shouldn't fit or that we might think wouldn't fit or that are exceeding expectations in some way. And just the whole concept of an essay collection, right, I think is interesting in that sometimes we're juxtaposing ideas or concepts or experiences. And how do you think about the theme of an essay collection or what makes a collection into a collection? Because when, I mean, from what I remember, the same, there wasn't quite the same market for an essay collection earlier as there is now. And I mean, creative nonfiction wasn't taught 
as widely earlier as it is now. And and I feel like writers like you have have kind of pioneered this form um, and popularized it much more than it. I mean, I think that you know when I was when I was an MFA student, I felt like people were not reading essay collections with the same frequency that they are now. And I wonder how that has changed over the course of your career and if you've thought about it differently over the course of your career. Yeah, it, something has changed and I'm like really I'll happily take the the pioneer comment. <laughs> it's true though. But I don't know, but it's We only have pioneers on the podcast. It's partially true. I'm going to answer by telling you so before this will get nice to show you. This will find its way home. But before I... All right, we're here. Quit. We're here for you. <laughs> okay, good. Before I became a writer full-time, which has been almost eight years now, um, or seven, I used to work in publishing, and I worked with various authors in, in book publishing. And one of them was Alice Monroe, and I remember being in a, in a car with her, in the backseat of a car, and I asked her if people recognized her on the street, especially, you know, in, the, in Canada. And she said, she thought about it, and she said, you know, on my better days, I think they do. I think they, they know who I am, and they're just sort of trying to play it cool. And on my worst days, I think they think, aw, what a sweet little old lady. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I feel, that's how I feel about, in terms of my role with this, um, is that on my better days, I think, yeah, I mean, the book... It was a paperback original. I was told that publishing essays was sort of tantamount to publishing poetry. Yeah. That and was really the view. I think it's hard really to remember nothing. how much people really like opposed, no, it was actively nothing. opposed the idea of they, publishing you're essays. You're encouraged to either not do it or do it as like, oh, that's a cute, you know, I yeah. you just, you know, you can paint those figurines on your own time kind of <laughs> like project you're doing. And, and um, to that end, it, it was just, you know, and I got paid very little for it. It was just this tiny thing. And the only really giants around were men. It was Sedaris. And it was like, even, but even with men, it was like long time, no Bill Bryson. Like Crazy Salad, Nora Ephron. It was a really long time between that. And I feel bad about my neck. It was like years later. Yeah. Megan yeah. Dom's book was a revolution to me, but I don't know if it, it hit big in that same way. Um, to the general population and then something about I was told there'd be cake did so the Alice Monroe analogy is that sometimes I think yes now everyone and their mother wants a collection of essays and you know celebrities and people like that and sometimes I think I just hit the right time with a title that has pastry in it <laughs> that's appealing to people you know like really I mean and not being like falsely modest or falsely egotistical it's just sort of I don't think about it that much but if if forced to think about it that's sort of how I think about it um and in terms of how it's changed um I think we went through like a rough patch like a growing pains patch where especially young women were being paid like a hundred dollars to spill their deepest secrets and like their most embarrassing awful things they had done online and then suffering the consequences um and just the internet had really bastardized the form frankly for i remember some essays of that were specifically about that i can't remember they were so awful i mean and and maybe they were some essays that were about the issue you're talking about right now yes yeah i think gia wrote one of those actually there was one in the new yorker or maybe the new yorker it was gia tolentino's oh it was was gia tolentino's she's been on the show yeah it was her um and there are a couple that try, have tried to do it over the years that have either... Hers was very good, I think, because it didn't, if I recall correctly, group... You know, there's a style section tick that people can have where, like, okay, I saw a pineapple in the store and a pineapple lamp and someone wearing a pineapple on their t-shirt and therefore pineapples are all the rage. I'm going to write a trend piece about it. Yeah. And, I, you know, that sort of rule of three almost. And... Uh, a lot of times these pieces about, you know, where is the essay now? Mm-hmm. They just group everyone who's had a pub date in the past three years together. It is totally irrelevant. And I think her piece was actually, I remember being very smart. We'll, we'll find that one and yeah, we'll find put it in the it. show notes. Okay. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, but the fact that people can talk about what trends there are in the personal essay know, right now so funny. is insane because <laughs> that didn't used to happen. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, like when I was getting trend. my MFA, that was, yeah. you know, people talked about that in terms no. of like, oh, there's an Iowa story and everyone writes like Raymond Carver. And this is that was what everyone obsessed on. Now. I mean, that's how I was weaned too. I mean, in college, even it was all like. You know, not just Raymond Carver, just Cheever, Alice Elliott Dark. I remember reading her. Like, people that were just um, 
Donald Barthelme, like these like eighties kind of yeah. icons. Lori Moore, but she's still an icon of mine. Yeah. Um, but I taught actually briefly at Columbia. I taught in narrative nonfiction their MFA program, but it was only op- open to fiction candidates. So it was such a weird mix because a lot of the, I mean they were all very talented, but a lot of them. For them, it's like the ice capades still, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, the Olympics is this class. Now we're just going to tell a bunch now of stories Now we're going to dress up like Grover and skate and around. Exactly. We're just going to dress up like, it's like, oh, no one cares. I can fall. There's no, you know, po- negative points from the East German judge. There's no East German judge. But for, they, find, they found out otherwise, though. It's, it's a lot <laughs> I was like, all I got right, children, of Grover welcome costume. to the Thunderdome. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I just literally got off the phone talking with a, a, a student who, uh, you know, was quizzing me about, wants to, this is, you know, this is um, like recruitment week for MFA programs, oh, right? Okay. All of our new students are coming in. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to steal Sugi's students away. She's stealing my <laughs> students. <laughs> You know, and so I have a student, and the student is asking me, like, basically wanting to know, like, how good is the non creative nonfiction element of your program? All these specific wow. questions, you know, like, I mean, it's it, great. That was like what we had to sell, in essence, you know? It's great, except it feels, it's so much older than, you know, it's, it's a, I would say that these people should, a lot of times, I think they're looking towards the wrong thing. Like, I don't actually read that much humor when I do read. Nonfiction, or if I'm reading older nonfiction, especially New York stuff, it's like Don Powell or Joseph Mitchell, or like mm. like go back Elizabeth Hartwick, like go back a little further. Yeah, she's um, great. I don't know. I just don't read that many funny things. Sad. So one last question: um, Are you ever tempted to write about Trump hmm. or Scott Pruitt? I saw an interview with him recently, and I thought that must be the least funny person in the world, possibly even less funny than Trump or Paul Ryan, or for that matter, any politician, Republican or Democrat. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like what can one do that Joan Didion has not already done <laughs> when it comes to politics? Um, I mean, it's it's I although there is an essay to be had on like Kitty Dukakis's like swigging, rubbing alcohol in the closet, but um, no, the the. So that would be sort There's of like not, Curtis Sittenfeld like has written, you know. She's done well, but she it's writes fictional. from from obliquely, right, from off to of the course, side, right, which is a really interesting way of doing it. And she does it with such heart, which I don't know if I have heart. But I, think, <laughs> I was I think wondering, I are you really going to go with that? It's not for you do releasing. Have, you have plenty of heart. I can't what are you talking about? To the Republican Party oh, okay. for fictional purposes I is understand. what I'm saying. But I just honestly. You know, a, they say a picture paints a thousand words, and that picture of Paul Ryan weightlifting. What can I do? Oh, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> Sloan, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been really awesome. Everybody will come out to see you as you tour for Look Alive out there and safe travels to Lawrence. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here at the table on the podcast. <laughs> I built this room with my dad when I was like 10. <laughs> with your bare hands. Really? I did, literally with my it's bare amazing. hands. It's a nice Oh my room. God. Well, thank you for I having have to me. The in it. <laughs> uh, thanks, Sloan. And now we're thrilled to be joined by the Washington Post's Alexandra Petri. Alexandra is the author of the comic memoir, A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Her column for the Washington Post, Compost, offers a humorous take on the news. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Hi. It's so great to have you here. I grew up reading the Washington Post, which I consider one of the more voice-driven national newspapers, and it's also obviously my hometown favorite. And now your column is one of my favorite parts of it. It's we need amazing. To get some advertising from the Post, Sugi, given how much you compliment <laughs> I know, that paper. Seriously. Um, yeah, you, a, this, is, this is sponsored, entirely sponsored. Yeah. I'm just such a diehard. I mean, I grew up reading the entire Post every day after school and just feel like I loved it so much. Um and I think that, you know, your column is amazing and that it makes me laugh about news that when I read it in sort of a straight news format often seems deeply unfunny. And a lot of people have observed that President Trump seems to have zero ability to laugh at himself. Uh, the Washington, the White House even once included a column of yours in its daily news briefing because they didn't get the joke. <laughs> so which was amazing. Um, so I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about how you write jokes about news cycles that a, an arguably humorless person dominates so very thoroughly. Well, 
to start off, I also grew up reading the post. I feel like, which way did you read it from like the straightforward from the news section first? Because I always used to read it from the comics backward. I would just start at the comics and then I would work <laughs> my way out gradually and organically to the rest of the newspaper. I would read style and sports and then go back to news. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, no, my version was the star and I always started with the comics, then sports like Sugi and then maybe news. Huh. Yeah, no, I feel like an affection for the print comics is now like this weird thing that we all have. But I'm still like, what is Mark Trail up to? Is he <laughs> he's fighting a rhino, apparently, is the answer to this question. He's been fighting a rhino for the past like eight weeks. Um, I also love the time distortion. No, but uh, I guess to go back to the question and not derail everything onto a long digression about Mark Trail, which we could do for hours, um, I think reading the news and having to sort of be steeped in this acid vat that is the news cycle these days where like you emerge at the end of the week and you're just like a skeleton, but also sort of, you know, the, the flesh has flaked off of you. That was <laughs> more visceral than I realized. But so you, I think it comes from my desire to have someone who looks at the news and is yelling at it with me. And I try to be that person because I don't think like, Oscar Wilde always said, life is far too important a thing to talk seriously about it. Was that, a, was that about, Oscar Wilde's yeah. accent? I did not. That's not how <laughs> yeah. I, I don't remember I, I that. Make a strong choice there. <laughs> <laughs> so he, but I, I do agree with that because I think he was being sort of flippant, but I do think like when you're taking things seriously, a, a way of like making it still bearable to learn all of this information that you have to carry around in your mind about the, like 800 people who look like they're on like a Muppets Most Wanted poster who that Donald Trump has surrounded himself with, like put some jokes in there and that'll hopefully help inform people. Well, one of the weird things about Trump's humorlessness is that there's, you know, there is a tradition of conservative <laughs> humor that precedes Trump a tradition of conservative politicians and writing that values laughter. I mean, I think of Christopher Buckley, for instance, you know. Yeah, P.J. O'Rourke. Yeah, P.J. O'Rourke. Um, so were you influenced by any of these writers? I grew up, so like my first introduction to like comedy writing full stop was I got a copy of the this book called The Penguin Dictionary of Modern Humorous Quotations, and I just carried it around with me and read everything that was in it. And so there was this weird smorgasbord of sort of Oscar Wilde, but also like P.J. O'Rourke, and like you had a little bit of Chris Buckley. I think there might even have been some William F. Buckley Jr. in there because all of his quotes are like, oh, yes, I'm so conservative, I flew, but only on the right wing of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Accents are happening here. <laughs> like he's like perched out on there, William Shatner staring at him, <laughs> terrified. Um, anyway, uh, but so I feel like there is this, and, and right now I'm like reading the Boswell's Life of Johnson, which is my favorite thing that's ever happened. And, jo nice. and Johnson was very conservative because, mo and, I mean, I'm not saying that he was conservative because the government was paying him a pension. I think he would have been conservative even if they hadn't been paying him a pension. But so he has all these very hot takes about the American Revolution and why it's a bad idea and why, like, <laughs> he, like he, just, he posts this pamphlet in 1775 called Taxation, Not Theft. And it's like, oh, it, it, it was pretty much theft. It definitely, taxation without representation is tyranny, I would say. That's my correct take. But he was a conservative writer and he was very funny. And Aristophanes, like, if you go way back, all of his jokes are based on the premise that like boys these days their butts are so fat but they used to be slender and strong and like uh I, i'm not this isn't me just saying that this is an actual <laughs> quote from the play um at the clouds and it's uh his is like dirtier than mine I, i'm like being respectful um but so like there are there is this history of conservative humor Look, we've already gotten Mark Trail and Aristophanes in on the podcast. We could just call it a Plus day as far accents. as I'm concerned and go from there. But I think I do, we could just I mean, switch this right now to the accent episode. Yeah. yeah. I also felt like I – would. I don't know if you would call National Lampoon, you know, which was extremely popular. I mean, well, Harvard – starting with a Harvard Lampoon and then sort of I think if I understand the history right became National Lampoon. But, you know, making – I felt like that was basically a conservative humor organization, you know, and a lot of the movies that they did were – fundamentally conservative in certain ways. That's interesting. I'm not as familiar with the National Lampoon and its genesis, so I will take your word for that. I've, like, read sort of excerpts of it, and I know that, like, the Harvard version of it continues to sort of thrive and uh, metastasize in various ways. Um, and I think 
because with conservative humor, you're joking because you think like there's certain things about the world as it is that you like and you don't want people to go and take them away. It's sort of like, hey, like you're standing athwart history yelling stop. Yeah. You're trying to, but, but stop is a joke somehow, which I feel like a lot of people, like there's always a debate is like, can liberals be funny? Well, can conservatives be funny? And some of it comes down to like, do you think that what you're joking, like do you agree with the premise of the joke that such and such is right and such and such is funny and like ridiculous and should be stopped? Because like my grandmother loves Greg Gutfeld. I feel like this always comes up, uh, but like she's always watching him and he's always like, Santa Claus is white and we know it. And it's like, this is a funny joke to him because that's how he think the world's it, thinks the world is. But if it's not how you think the world is, then it's really not a funny premise. It's just like an inaccurate statement. So I think that's sort of a lot of the disconnect with like, can this be funny? Well, it depends. Do you think that like the thing it's making fun of is the thing that's funny? Or do you think that that's like punching down in a weird way? So. Yeah, which maybe gets back to, I mean, Trump himself is so humorless. He is unable to crack a joke on the rare jokes, on the rare occasion that he attempts to crack a joke. It's, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm, it's subjective, but I don't think he's funny. I don't know anyone who thinks he's funny. Maybe I just live in a bubble. But, um, I mean, I'm sure I do live in a bubble. But it just seems, he seems notably humorless. And when we were talking about this episode, we were thinking not only about the ways that creative responses to the news seem to have changed, but also the humor of the participants themselves. And then Whitney was saying, uh, Ronald, Reagan had, Ronald Reagan had a sense of humor about himself, and, and I was pretty little when Ronald Reagan was president, but I kind of remember that. Um, you know, your dad was a Republican member, member of Congress, but so many members of the Trump administration, certainly at least in public, seemed just laughless. And I'm wondering if there were politicians from earlier times you thought of as particularly funny, and if you think there are funny politicians now... I feel like Abraham Lincoln was hilarious and not to just turn everything into, into fart jokes, but he used to tell these, this like, so the thing that I resented most about Lincoln, the movie, other than like Daniel Day-Lewis literally becoming Abraham Lincoln and texting Sally Field in character, which like, g- good for you, Daniel Day-Lewis. He seems to have a lot of spare time. Um, and uh, so, but, but they, they use this one joke about like, he's like you know in the latrine and he's like why is there a picture of george washington in my latrine it's because nothing makes an english person evacuate his bowels faster than the sight of general washington uh and so he was like he liked to tell fart jokes and sort of um <laughs> but like politically it's the whole sort of like ability to be self-deprecating so uh they they would say he's two-faced and he'd go well if i had two faces would i be wearing this one and for some reason <laughs> my accents are really way off now <laughs> but if I had two faces, would I be wearing this one? Or, you know, how the, 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 his farting turkey carver story, always a classic, uh, where this man was carding, carving a turkey, uh, and this man was regarded by his friends as a quick wit. I'm not telling it as well as Lincoln told it, but this is authentically a, a Lincoln joke. Uh, he's carving the turkey, and he farts loudly, and everyone in the, in, at the table falls silent. And they look at this man trying to figure out how is he going to respond to the fact that he's just loudly farted in front of the entire audience. And he rolls up his sleeves and he sharpens his knife and he goes, now, by God, I'm going to see if I can't carve this turkey without farting. And uh, anyway, I guess you had to be there. The 1860s, they were a weird time. Um, but, well, but I so- agree. I agree that self-deprecation is the key, you know. That's the thing. Like, if if a politician has the ability to laugh at themselves, that's what's always funniest. You know, I thought Obama was pretty good at that. Um, yeah, no, like there was this very funny joke from his White House correspondence dinner, and I I feel like he always had outside help. So now I can be like, I know that Nels Cavell wrote this one where he's like, people complain that I'm too in bed with Hollywood. I was just saying to George Clooney the other day that, like, people complain that I'm too in bed with Hollywood. It it was a better joke when he told it. But, like, you have to understand how you appear to other people and why that might be ridiculous in order for self-deprecating humor to work. And I feel like Donald Trump looks in the mirror and he sees, like, the picture of Dorian Gray, but, like, the person, not the the painting. He's just like, this is perfect. He's eternally young. He has no flaws and his complexion is such as to make angels weep. And most people, I think, see something different. 
There was just a couple times that I noticed a few times. Didn't he sort of make fun of himself a little bit at the correspondence dinner this year? Didn't he make fun of his hair one time? I mean, that's the thing he should make fun of. You know, that's the thing a, a politician would make fun of. They know that everyone makes fun of his hair. So you get out in front of the joke. Um, I just don't Doesn't see him doing that the very often. Oh, no, he, he did at, he the, at CPAC. He made sort of a joke. Oh, that's hair. what it was. You're right. It was um, CPAC. He's like, I get it to hold up there. But I think part of it is like he, how he whether he feels like the room is in on the joke with him and his rallies. I think his rallies, he gets a lot of laughs, but right. his laughs are all the things like let's lock Hillary Clinton away or like we all know that immigrants are a terrible threat. And it's like he, it, so, it's not really a joke. His jokes at the at the rallies like, are like the ones I told at the beginning of the podcast, meaning like they're just kind of mean, it seems like. It's like cheering for the Cobra Kai. I just like he reminds me of nothing so much as a. I mean, it's it's like watching a bully tell jokes, and which is yeah. not only yeah, it's just it's just not entertaining. But I mean, are there other? I mean, Whitney, when we were talking about this, you were sort of like John Boehner. He has his funny moments, and I was like, he does. When are those? Um, I think he did and I start wonder if there's. When he left office, which I thought was one of the funniest things, post office, John Boehner started immediately the second he was doing that press conference. And uh, he just he, he literally was singing. And now I'm forgetting which song it was, but the actual song it, it makes it so much funnier. Um, and he posts but, actual little pictures of himself, like working on his lawn and makes fun of himself for how into he is about his lawn. I find that amusing. No, he's like slowly becoming Onion Joe Biden. That's his life trajectory. <laughs> like oh my God, just... was it Zippity Doodah? Was he yes, singing... it was. Oh, I knew it. Yes. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. From he he found it in the vault and he got it out and he sang it. <laughs> I know that song. I'm not going to sing that song, but I'm proud of John Boehner for singing that song. You know, there was interest. There was a review in the New York Times Book Review just last week about. Uh, a book about a, a guy who'd shown movies to Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan and talked about what they liked and what they didn't like. And one of the movies that he liked so much, uh, that he loved was Ghostbusters. And I was amusing. It was interesting to me. To, I mean, look, I disagree that with Reagan on political you. issues totally. But to imagine him laughing at Ghostbusters, that was somewhat reassuring, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, and he appreciates a good comma-based joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what we want to know is if, uh, while you're here, could you read to us from one of your columns? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've, I've got J- the James Comey book excerpt. Yeah, please. And so basically, the excerpt started leaking out, and so I figured that, conjecturing from the data points that we had, I could figure out what the rest of the book would sound like. And uh, he has this wonderful quote that got shared where he said, I stared at the soft white pouches under his expressionless blue eyes. I remember thinking in that moment that the president doesn't understand the FBI's role in American life. And that's a real excerpt. So based on that, the my projected excerpts ran as follows. I have been called a human humblebrag. I certainly couldn't speak to the truth of that statement, except to say that where I come from, we don't like bullies and their mean words. Bullies are mean and small, not like myself. I stand six foot six, six foot eight, with a head of lush dark hair and eyes that pierce into the souls of everyone I encounter, like the eyes of a hawk who has read Reinhold Niebuhr. I wrote <laughs> Reinhold Niebuhr. <laughs> I would venture to say that I am the protagonist of my own life, and perhaps the lives of many others. Certainly, no one else has as yet stood up to take on this grave responsibility, and it was my honor to rise to this challenge. It is a little embarrassing to describe myself. I stand, as mentioned, about six foot eight, like an oak with a firm sense of right and wrong <laughs> and large, capacious hands. <laughs> when I first seized Donald Trump's, I took a mental note and later a physical note. I maintained scrupulous contemporaneous notes that they had vanished into mine like a dormouse curled up inside an oven mitt. But most hands do that when confronted with mine, except President Barack Obama's and, I hope, Reinhold Niebuhr's, if we ever meet in this life or the next. Not to draw any parallels to my time as a prosecutor against the mob, but when I met Donald Trump, one couldn't help but note certain similarities. Donald Trump would frequently ask me if I would like to be quote-unquote made, but I made a point to fob him off with a joke, saying, I think I've been made already, Donald Trump, by a far higher power, as Reinhold Niebuhr would suggest. (laughs) Donald Trump did not laugh at these jokes. He never once laughed in my presence. I think it is a grave danger to democracy for a man never to laugh. 
after we met, I glanced over at Jeff Sessions to see what he thought of it all. And although he spoke not a word, his pursed pink lips seemed to say that he was a weak, small man with no gumption. He was pleading with me with his downcast eyes to do the right thing. And with my eyes, I said right back, I will. I always have. I never swerve from what I believe. And you can bet a shiny nickel that I never will, sir. Thank you, Jeff's essence eyes is whispered. They glistened like marbles that were wet from being held in a dog's mouth. As I stared at them, I wondered, <laughs> has this man read the writings of Reinhold Niebuhr? I kept trying to read the Constitution to Donald Trump, but he did not take to it. I gave out mints to all my staff with their copy of Lean In, and with those mints, I included a line from the Constitution. But when I tried to impart a lesson, he ate the wrapper and spat it out in my face. So that's those are just a few excerpts from. <laughs> so there, I, so, I have a, I have a couple of observations to make. One is so, what this tells me is that you you write a lot of uh, of your humor columns in the first person, and or from like at the point of view of the character that you're writing about, rather than from your point of view. And 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 do you have the accent in your head while writing? That's my question. <laughs> There's always an accent somewhere, um, <laughs> and. I think sometimes like it's not so much an accent as like the way the words of the of the person shape up on the page. But when you've heard somebody like Comey, who has such a distinctive way of presenting his phrases and shaping them uh, and also a distinctive prose style and the two sort of meet. But he says Lordy a lot more out loud, although he does say what a world in the book. Um, I think. Do you go back and listen to his like testimony to sort of get a sense of how you want to do his cadences or something like that? Yeah, I feel like you have to sort of read a certain volume of their writing and then listen to them and, and, and enough to sort of get it in your ear. And which is, I, cause I do a lot of sort of parody style stuff. So I will usually go back and read the original as much as I can until I feel like when a sentence comes out next, it's going to sound like the sentence that I just read as opposed to like the sort of sentence that would come out of me ordinarily. Uh, well, now like what I'm about to say is going to sound really toolish, but it's like Ezra Pound said the only author that you can read without it rubbing off onto your prose style is Chaucer. And so he would always like carry around Chaucer as a palate cleanser. But, you know, I, I don't do that because Ezra Pound. <laughs> well, so it, I'm observing that. I mean, am I remembering right that do you minor in classics? Yes. Uh, and so um, this, it's when we ask you joke, when we ask you things about the present, you sort of your your set of references goes obviously pretty far back, and you're well read. And I mean that that column that you just read for us had everything in it from you know of course Reinhold Niebuhr too. like you know a dormouse curled inside an oven mitt makes me think of Lewis Carroll. Um, I don't know a, a dog. True, he's with... the only writer who like really traffics in dormice. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> I mean yeah, right. He made them his thing. I tried writing a novel about Dora Mice and it just didn't work. Um, yeah, no, like, I, what, what was there left to be said on the subject? Right. Treated it. And so, I don't know, it's interesting to hear how, like, the classic, almost political tragedy or, like, the tone or the tenor of, like, grand theater sort of works works its way into some of the things that you write. And I was thinking that, you know, I have a colleague who also sometimes, I sometimes teach humor-related things, and one of my colleagues also does, and she and I discussed i remember your chris christie column with a bunch of undergrads and then there too like it's this sort of theater of the absurd absurd the idea that chris christie and i can't again i think that might be a first person column um i think it's all like third person but like really close in which is like chris christie this chris christie that like chris christie has no mouth and he must scream um that 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 sort of Degree. Yeah, it's like very close. It's very close point of view at any rate. And like then the sense of him being trapped in. I don't know. I almost felt like I was like if if the scream had been a column instead of a painting, that, <laughs> that was what I was reading. And I mean, the undergrads were sort of like, how do you do this? Um, and I'm, you know, all of these conceits that you come up with, like these little flourishes, so many of them seem to come maybe from the classics. I'm speculating a little bit, but yeah. how do you where do you think they come from? I think. A lot of it is that, and because uh, I think I, I'm now badly mangling an Oscar Wilde quote, but he's like one of the ways to like give people the impression that you're very original is just read a lot of stuff and not tell people. Um, but <laughs> no, I, uh, but I think I sort of do partially as an escape from what's going on, but I think partially as sort of a way to give me hope and sort of a window into what's going on is I read a lot of sort of old timey stuff and. Because you can be depressed and think, well, things have never been worse. And then you 
read anything written at any other point in human history and you think well maybe actually <laughs> and so which is reassuring although for a while people were like well politics have never possibly been as polarized as they are right now and someone was like yes they were in 1859 and it's like <laughs> don't tell me that that's not good information to have <laughs> um, so i think like a lot of it is i just really do enjoy uh this like the nerding out about English majory type stuff. But I also think that if you can find somebody else who's had similar problems and they came up with a, like a metaphor and you can try to find a way of using that to shed light on your own situation. See, this is like whenever I try to talk about like, how do I write humor? I wind up sounding like this, like big jerk of an English major, but, uh, Hey, this is literary hub. We are, we are, our audience is basically composed of big jerks of English majors, of which I am one also. So please go ahead. (laughs) I'm like, no, but like synecdoche, though, and of course, (laughs) dogma, and furthermore. But I also was was, um, reading some other interviews with you, and you were talking about ways that you kind of test out jokes for your columns using other mediums. You are on Twitter. Uh, You're very prolific in a variety of mediums, and I'm wondering, does that help you to decide what makes it into the column? Yeah, because sometimes you think, I've got a joke that will definitely power an entire column, and then you tweet it, and you're like, no, I have a single joke, and that was the joke, and it is gone now. <laughs> that g- Goodbye, joke. Enjoy your life in this medium that is better suited to you. So that's something that is good to discover, and it's good to have an outlet for that purpose. So, but- you know, it's a little bit of an old-timey thing to write a humor column for a daily newspaper. You know, I mean, that, I know, that used to be a staple, but that's increasingly uncommon you know why did why did you decide why did newspapers appeal to you as a place to be publishing your work i mean i feel like any place to publish your work is appealing in this day and age but i think like the more i think about it the more i realize that that was what i grew up reading to a large extent i was always like super into like james thurber who and like dave barry uh, was my jam. Like, obviously, as a, as a post reader, he would be there every weekend in the right. little magazine and with a an excitingly exaggerated illustration. And so just the, this just seemed to me like, like print comic strips, like a normal career that would continue to exist for many hundreds of years. And so, but like, at first I used to feel like, more of a relic than I think I do now. Cause now it's just like, everything's on the internet. That's how everyone makes their jokes. You can put them in a video and put them on the internet, or you can put them into some prose and put them on the internet. But this is where everybody hangs out all of the time. And so it, it feels less like a, I'm sending it out into a print newspaper every week. Although I'm thrilled and delighted to do that every week. And also syndicated sometimes twice a week. It depends. Check out the Salt Lake Tribune. That's my plug. I know it that's is, cool being a syndicated columnist. That's like yeah. the Salt Lake it's Tribune. Awesome. And, and, and other newspapers, I think, but definitely the Salt Lake Tribune. Thank you for your discernment, newspaper. Um, Wait, do you hear back from readers from all over the world? And what is that like? It's great. Although usually they're annoyed, so it's bad. Uh, no, it's it's great because it's, it's fun to see. Sometimes you'll he- hear somebody who just says, hey, I really liked your column. Uh, or you'll see, hear from somebody who says, I would like you to publish my column, which is I'm not always able to help them with that. But well, like, especially yeah. if their column is entirely a poem and the premise is that Donald Trump is a choo-choo who's gone wrong, which <laughs> I it's nice anytime you hear back because it can be sort of like, you know, dropping a rose petal down the Grand Canyon and waiting for the echo otherwise. I was thinking about that. The Comey uh, column that you read, you know, is – Look, I mean, for the most part, you make points that I, as a liberal, agree with. But that, you know, uh, you know, making Comey look sort of self-important and foolish is something that the Republicans would very much like to do right now. But their current strategy is not to make fun of the guy, is to say, he's a slimeball, he's terrible, he lied, he did all these things, to be very serious and, like, dogmatic about it, which is not funny. I wonder why is it that the right isn't choosing humor when they have the opportunity to do so? That's interesting because I think like there is like a longer version of the column online where I point out that like we had this tendency I think across the board as a country that as you're saying like the right isn't playing enough into on this one but to sort of 
conflate people who are personally grading to us in some way with therefore not wanting to have to hear from them. Like the whole sort of thing where like you have a voter who sees Al Gore on TV and is like, if I have to hear from that man every day, it's going to be unfortunate instead of sort of thinking, (laughs) you know, who will do a good job of governing and weighing it that way. And so this sort of elevation of style over substance I think has really played into Donald Trump's hands a lot of the time because his style is consistently entertaining whatever else you will say about it. Right. Uh, like he, he mm-hmm. it's watchable in the sense that like a toaster that you know is going to burst into flame at any point if you look away from it is watchable, but it's definitely watchable. Um, and so it, it, it everyone in, instead of being like this premise is a flawed premise. We have to be like this man may be personally obnoxious and he's wandering around like with Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder and yet he's behaved correctly and the fact that he might annoy us if we sat next to him at a meal should not in any way make his account less valuable or the fact that Donald Trump fired him any less damning. And sort of holding those two ideas I think is surprisingly harder than we thought it would be. Is there anything that you have wanted to write about and you just, you know, you're sitting at your typewriter. I'm now imagining you in this old timey setting, too. And, (laughs) you know, (laughs) yeah. And you, you know, you yank the paper out, you crumple it up and you throw in the trash can. and You're like, I can't do it. Um, Is there is there an event or a character who has escaped your your humorous vision? Oh, man. So many. I think there's this vast iceberg beneath what I do write of all the things that I intend to write and can never figure out quite how to get to them or the news cycle moves on. Mostly right now, things are casualties of the news cycle. It's not so much that I sit there and I think, oh, this is going to be perfect, but I just can't figure out how to say it. Like sometimes I will think I may have figured out how to say it and then like six weeks will pass in this expanse of a Tuesday afternoon and you won't be able to do whatever it was that you were planning to do. So like I, I really wanted to weigh in on the pandas and like they're you know how pandas are all virile and really sexy now and that's happening. Oh my uh, god, there's news that I missed. There was panda news and I missed it. I'm oh completely my, yeah. no idea what this is. Well, so my theory is that the Wall Street Journal interviewed a panda because I don't know how else they came to this conclusion because they published this piece, which is an excerpt from a book by I think a naturalist who does actually know these things. But the excerpt was saying we've been led to believe that pandas are hapless fumblers when it comes to sex. But in fact, they're virile lotharios. They can mate up to 40 times in a single afternoon. And they only eat bamboo because they choose to. They could eat anything. And I'm like, they interviewed a panda. There's the only the only <laughs> possible explanation for this. Is they talk to a male panda and he's like, listen, I know what I'm doing and I could do it 40 times but anyway no it was on tucker carlson he had this big panda closer during all of the cohen raids and so everyone was making fun of him for uh, i remember that TV yeah. time okay this. This but is i why think I... the panda story has fallen by the wayside like <laughs> how virile are pandas america needs to know I think the panda could be angry for being made fun of for uh, people acting as though the panda was a screen for the Cohen raid. I mean, this is serious news. Exactly. So, but you don't just write about the news. I mean, you're the author of a book. You've written plays. You performed. You started the emo Kylo Ren parody account on Twitter, which is uh, important to my son. Um, how do you think? How do you think about different modes of writing? Uh, where are the political? Where are political jokes the most successful? Well, I think they're most successful in an audience who wants to hear them. Uh, <laughs> which is, I mean, I guess I I like to joke that as a fun break from writing, I will go off and write. But I really do love it, and I and doing it in different sort of mediums, you get to do different things because when you're writing a political sort of humor column, the characters that you get to meet are just real people and your conjectures about why they're doing what they're doing. But if you're writing fiction or if you're writing a play, you can just make up people. And like, sometimes it's easier to say true things if you're in a more fictional world than it is when you have to, when you're sort of bounded by the limits of actual existence. Well, you know this, of course. Um, (laughs) Like, I... This is just like me, like aspiring to write anything novel, like. But, uh, but that, like p- part of it is also the internet is just a place where you can 
if if you're the thing that nine people really want to read, you can find your your little corner of the sky and hang out there. As opposed to if you're writing something in a tower for a long time and then you sort of take it out, and you really don't know like who its people are going to be. Yeah. Um, and so I, I I do enjoy that immediate sort of here's your pellet, uh, squirrel, rabbit, whatever animal hits like the thing and panda. Your pellet. Yeah, panda. Yeah, here's your <laughs> pellet, panda. Take it. Have your immediate feedback. Here's the like button, which has sort of ruined me for like marathon writing things. I keep sitting down like. And, and instead of like writing a novel, I will just sit down and picture the dust jacket and get really excited about the dust jacket. And then I'll look at it and that whole afternoon will have passed. Um, <laughs> that might be a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it'll say a deft. It'll say deft somewhere. I just know it's going to say deft on there and I'm going to be really excited. Um, like it deftly weaves something. There you go. And something else. Yeah. I, I'm just hoping for that. Well, we'll remember uh, when you ask Sugi to to do a blurb. We'll, we'll remember that she can make sure she puts it in there. Yeah, let's call it a deft comedy jam. Hey, uh, <laughs> in this in this deft account of Lincoln's scatological musings, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry that everything has been so like scatological, but like semi highbrow scatological. I hope at least. Well, no, I mean, I think like I when I do teach, I mean, right? It's actually. Like one of the things I've been thinking about in reading your columns, I mean, how much I love your columns. And then I go back and I read, like, say, Veronica Gang, who I think in some ways right, was also writing these, like, news-driven parodies and these like, humorous little bits. I remember I assigned them to undergrads, like, maybe five years ago, and they just didn't get the references. And you seem to work in, I mean, like her, like, in multiple registers. Um, like, someday, I guess there'll be some child out there will not know who Kylo Ren is. But also... Yeah you know, like a field guide to awkward silences, like there's different parts of your material will that will age differently um, and will find different audiences, which seems to me like such a, it's um, it's a variety of registers that I really appreciate. I hope so. That would be really cool. In, in Forster, where he's making fun of this woman who's like, well, how can I know what I think until I see what I say? But as somebody who sort of always has known that they were a writer, that's really how I see things. It's like until I get the little black things come squiggling out onto the white space on my computer. Like everything's only partially formed. And so I'm really grateful that I get the opportunity to do that. And also uh, it's, and and that people like it in various ways. Alexandra, thanks so much for being with us today. And we're looking forward to reading the next installment of compost. Thank you. It's really been awesome to have you on today. As you know, I'm a posty diehard and I just can't wait to see what you do next. And that's it for this week's fiction nonfiction podcast. Whitney and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at the Literary Hub website. We really appreciate feedback and discussion. We think of this podcast as a community, so we hope you'll keep it up. Visit us at FNF Talk on Twitter, FNF Pod on Facebook, and we can talk about whether I was wrong that Donald Trump is humorless. As he said at the Gridiron Dinner, nobody does self-deprecating humor better than I do. 